Hello, and welcome to the AgTech So What podcast. Emerging technologies are rapidly changing the global agricultural industry, and we believe that this revolution is only getting started. But there's still too much hype out there and too big of a disconnect between ag and ag tech. So on this show, we try to bridge that gap. In each episode, we bring you the story of a different innovator in agriculture and try to find the place where ag and tech meet. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. Welcome back to the Ag Tech So What podcast. Today's guest is Mark Mortimer, and I love this episode with Mark uh, because we talk about something that's really kind of near and dear to my heart around um, technology development and the role that producers can play in creating new technologies and in ensuring that the tech products that get built really do have a value proposition and really do solve problems on farm. So we talk about Mark uh, going from not interested at all in computers to a self-proclaimed sheep geek and we compare farming to um, open source. So how is information shared and um, what's that like in the tech world versus in the farming world? We talk a little bit about why the sheep industry um, is behind in terms of adoption of technology and Mark's views on that. And then Mark has some great examples of how he has worked with both researchers and startups to help commercialize technologies and bring them to market and what role he played and what roles he didn't play um, as a farmer in helping to bring those uh, solutions to market. So without further ado, here is Mark Mortimer. Mark Mortimer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, It's a pleasure, Sarah. Happy to be here. Whereabouts are you calling from today? Uh, So I'm calling from a place called Albert in central New South Wales, Australia. So, um, you know, the back of nowhere for some people, but we, we call it civilization. I'm sure. And is that home or are you um, traveling today? I uh, know that's home. So I'm sitting in my office uh, looking out down the paddock. I could probably see about 5Ks in a flat landscape, lightly timbered. Um, can't see any sheep at the moment, but they're normally out there somewhere. Yep. I'm sure hopefully they're somewhere else. You got a different problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Mark, tell me a little bit about the the farm and the business um, and your kind of background. Take me through um, what has brought you to to sitting in the office there today. Yeah, well, so um, it's a typical family farming operation. So we operate as a partnership. So my father and, and my brother and, and our families are involved in it. Uh, the end of the partnership that I'm involved in is, I guess, heavily involved in sheep and the seed stock industry. So um, we breed sheep for genetics and semen and embryos for clients. So I guess that's the main aspect of what I do. And obviously all the technologies that go into helping us breed those sheep and to stay at the cutting ed- edge of the industry genetically. Um, yeah. as, as for my background, I guess like all kids that grew up out here where I am, uh, went away to boarding school because there weren't many local schooling options when I was younger. So, you know, away to boarding school, um, was back home on the farm at 16, um, worked for five years and then went away to uni. So I do have a degree in management on farm business, um, but I don't let too many people know that. Um, so I, you know, essentially I am trained to be doing what I'm doing. Um, whereas most farmers absolutely learn on the job and there's still a very large aspect of what I do that is, you know, you learn on the job 
and you pick up things as you go along. Do you feel like what you learned in that degree was useful? Like, are there things you use on a day-to-day basis? Um, yeah. So, um, you know, apart from university being a, a fantastic holiday for somebody that had spent five years in the workforce, <laughs> um, the most important thing was the ability to learn. I mean, that's what, that's what they taught you. So, you know, um, you know, we're taught to question things. We're taught how to find information, how to get answers. Um, the actual technical side of what they learnt back then, you know, it's um, sad to say it's probably over 20 years ago. So, it, you know, it's not very relevant anymore. But that ability to learn and, and to question and to seek information, you know, that's, that's invaluable. Right. And, and you definitely use that in, um, it seems, on the tech side for sure, in kind of learning how to build new solutions and use uh, new different kinds of technologies to solve problems on the farm. I'm sure you use that in lots of other ways as well, but that's definitely the one that I have seen you, um, have seen you doing and, and want to talk a little bit about today. Have you always been um, interested in, and keen on technology or is that something that came about later? Uh, I think it's something that came back later. So I, I know, you know, my mum tells me that when I was a young fellow that, you know, I, I was very happy to point out to people that I didn't know to, need to go to school. I was just going to be a farmer. So, you know, I, I didn't need to learn to read or write or know anything about <laughs> Um I just needed to know how to whistle up the dog and drive a bike and a ute and, and walk out the door every morning. And, you know, that was a young fellow. That was quite appealing. I love being out the farm and that's what I wanted to do. So... Um, and I did leave school early. I wasn't very successful at school. So, um, you know, those, you know, the ability, you know, going back to uni as a mature age student and, and those things certainly came much later. Um, you know, as a young fellow, you know, computers were useless to me. You know, I couldn't spell or write well enough to drive them. You know, Windows didn't exist back then. Everything was text-based. Um, whereas now they're a tool that I use every day. Um, I walk out the door every morning with a, computer bag over my shoulder and go to work on a sheep farm. So, you know, that's a big change. You know, don't go anywhere without them. That's a huge change. So how did that change come about? Like what was the switcher moment when you went from these things are, are not useful to me to I'm going to dig in a little more and figure out how to use them? Yeah. So I guess it was probably a gradual process. Um, like most people that on the farm that have to keep some sheep data, it probably started with Excel, which is, you know, it's a great program, but it's, you know, it's not a database and it is fraught with danger. So, you know, I used to tinker there and write my formulas and, you know, decided this wasn't the space that was, you know, beneficial to us. Um, so a friend of mine prompted me to learn how to write computer code. Um, so, I, you know, read a few help manuals and, and got some software and that's, you know, that's where it sort of started, I guess, learning to write um, computer programs and then being able to design databases and, software that was tailor-made for what we needed to do on the farm with the sheep. Um, so, you know, historically, you know, people would, um, you would gather your data, either pen or paper or into some kind of indicator and all the assessment and work would be done later on in the office. And, you know, I wanted to move to doing that work, you know, live at the race side. Um, and that's where that came from. There wasn't software available when we wanted to do that. So, you know, that's where I started and building my own tools. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, <laughs> I think probably a lot of people, especially young people nowadays, get 
the suggestion, you know, you should learn to write some computer code. And I bet, you know, less than 1% decide to go buy a help manual and, and, and dig into it and start actually learning how to do it. So what do you think it is about you or was it maybe the, the problem was so great that, that actually took you from these things are useless and I don't even want to learn to write to I'm going to go read a whole manual and learn a new language and, and do this. Like what, what, um, what was that decision like? Um, I guess, I, you know, I can only look at it um, in hindsight. I don't think it was a, you know, it was, it was something I was obviously interested in. Um, I have read a bit about computer science and the types of people and personalities that um, are drawn to it and, are, you know, and it appeals to them. And I fit squarely into that, in that personality type. So I know, so computer science is one of those rare courses that when they look at all the students' results, it has a double bell curve. So you have those students that have some innate ability to write code um, in the top bell curve. And then you have other people who are equally as intelligent that just find it difficult. Um, so obviously it's something that I found easy. Yeah, so um, obviously when I was learning, you know, you actually bought a help manual because you didn't go online. That just wasn't <laughs> a thing back then. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's, you know, it's a pretty dry old experience reading a help manual front to back and then learning to code. but you know, um, I guess part of that would have been the isolation on the farm. So I needed, you know, I needed something that challenged me. I really enjoy learning new things, making new stuff, um, discovering something that hasn't been discovered before. You know, it's a, it's really quite an exciting thing. So I guess one, the isolation on the farm, um, no social media, no connection to the outside world. You need something that stops you from going crazy. And obviously for me, you know, it was those technology types of things that, um, that I was drawn to, that I used to occupy my brain. Um, it's it's really interesting about the double bell curve. I didn't I didn't know that. Uh, I know my experience studying software engineering was um, was really frustrating because the I felt like there was this whole group of people who had done it as kind of tinkerers and hackers, and I was learning it from a more theoretical academic standpoint. And so I really liked and still really like the architecture and kind of problem solving and how do the pieces fit together and what are the functions need to do but I get tripped up and, and definitely in, in learning it got tripped up on the kind of like where do I put the code like how do I <laughs> make a script what are the shorthands and just felt like there was you know there are people who um, spent hours and hours learning the shorthand and the hacking and the kind of quick um, kind of practical aspects of programming and I was really excited about the theoretical problem solving systems. Um, and so it was, I like saw that at least in my, you know, cohort of people studying it and then later working of people who kind of got it at a different level than I did, um, and appreciated a very different aspect of writing software than I did. Um, which, which I always found really interesting. Yeah. So that's probably, I mean, you know, that's the opposite experience to me. So, you know, I was that tinker and hacker. Um, you know, so writing the code was the easy bit. Um, I'd love to have had the education that taught me that that large, you know, the underlying architecture for problem solving and some of the really modern and cool mathematical formulas and that, those kind of things. So, you know, I, I have no trouble writing code, but when it comes to solving those problems, you know, I'm solving them in isolation. So I guess there's some advantages. Um, nobody's told me what you can't do. Um, so, you know, there, you know, there are no boundaries when I set out to solve a problem, I guess. Um, yeah. which can be an advantage and a disadvantage because I fall into every trap that all beginners have taught not to do. 
Do you mm-hmm. have any good good stories of uh, of of kind of, or <laughs> of mistakes or uh, yeah, big things you messed up? Yeah, yeah. So I know. So there's um, some software called Total Genetic Resource Management that um, does mate allocations for breeders. So it takes all your rams and your ewes and optimizes the way to put them together. Um, and when we first first started to use that, it was it was a bit, you know it was it was a lot of money to have somebody run the software for you. So eight hundred to a thousand dollars. And I thought right, it can't be that hard. I'll make my own. Um, and I only had fifty two ewes and two rams that I needed to make together. And I just wrote a script that ran through every conceivable combination and assessed the result of that mating. And it would just log the best outcome that I'd chosen. Um, and I set my computer running and I came back in an hour's time and it had been through <clears throat> 2 million combinations. And I thought, this is <laughs> no time. Um, and I knew the number of combinations that it had to go through was a 16 digit number that started with nine. And I um, divided it by 2 million, um, which was an hour. And the number of hours it was going to take was a number that I couldn't read. So I divided that by 24 and that was still a very big number. So I divided that by 365 and my computer was going to run for a little over 500,000 years <laughs> um, to make them 52 U's and two Rams. And that's when I realized, you know, the guys that put this other software together, it just wasn't how they were doing it. Yep. <laughs> um, and it wasn't long after that, I read a paper on genetic algorithms um, and that opened up a whole new area for me and writing code and, you know, it's just something in my mind very poetic about using a genetic algorithm to find a solution for a real world genetic outcome. Um, so essentially, you know, we're using genetics and evolution in the real world to change the attributes of our sheep. And, and one of the tools we use is a genetic algorithm in our, in our software to achieve that. So, you know, there's something nice and poetic about that. Yeah, of course. Uh, do you get a lot of people, um, either other studs or, or commercial guys, asking to use the software? Like, have, have, do they want to benefit from the tools that you've built as well, or mostly from the results in terms of the the sheep and, and those outcomes? Uh, so mostly from the um, sheep and their outcomes. Certainly, I get lots of questions about what I use, and then you know, I you know, I just sort of have to mumble that I made it myself, and then because I know the next question is can I have a copy? And, you know, the answer's always been no. Um, so for those guys that um, work in the software industry, you know, building a prototype is one thing, building a product that you can put out into the real world for, you know, anyone to use and have it work successfully, are two very different things. So, you know, I'm after a solution to a problem and I'll, I'll write code and I'll make a tool that works for me. Um, given that I'm the guy that wrote the code, I know what not to do. And once it sort of works for me, I move on to the next project. So I've not been interested in, you know, making a finished product, um, selling it to people, you know, the idea of service and backup and distribution chains and, you know, yeah, they're all the kind of things that give me cold sweats at night. Um, <laughs> so it is more of a, a thing, um, an aspect of interest then, like you're just not interested in doing the other things you're interested in having built and solved the problem and then moving on, I guess I'm curious would, if someone came along and said, you know, let's partner and commercialize this together and you can keep doing what you're doing and I'll commercialize it and give you some benefit, um, ideally commercial, would you be interested in that kind of relationship? 
I would certainly be interested in discussing that, you know, how that would work. I mean, to me, that seems ideal. You know, if I just keep having ideas and somebody else, if they think they're valuable, you know, if they wanted to turn those ideas into better products, you know, well and good. Um, and I get, you know, I guess you would have seen on Twitter that I've built my own auto drafter. I guess that sort of fits into that category because I know other breeders come here, they see it working um, and they say, oh, you know, I'd love one that does that, but you, um, but you can't buy one. So, um, you know, I guess the way I see it is, you know, I have the idea, I tinker away in the workshop, I make it work, I put a video on Twitter and hopefully the guys that retail these products see it and if they think it's a good idea, they, they build it into their own products. Um, has that ever happened? Have, do you have an example of, of you building something and then it actually getting commercialized in one way or another or still waiting for them to take you uh, up on that? Yeah, so, I mean, I know there's things that I've built here and, and displayed publicly that turn up, you know, just small ideas and, you know, certainly with the auto drafter and, and the back door and, and the way it works, I've now seen commercial ones that do a very similar thing. Um, but that's, you know, I can't guarantee they got the idea from me. You know, if people are working on the same problem, it's not always unsurprising when different people come up with the same solution to the same problem. So, yeah, it's um, interesting. One of the things that gets talked about a lot in the tech world and, and research world is around IP. And, you know, this is, you know, I, I invented this thing. It's my intellectual property. And so I don't want anyone to know about it and you've really taken the opposite approach of I've in building it I've solved my own problem and so like do whatever you want with it because I've like I've already benefited and so um, it's just a I guess to me an interesting kind of opposite end of the spectrum of like the benefit to you is it solving the problem on the farm not you building a massive business to do it and so if it can help other people great but you're just not interested in that part of it so the ip is um yeah more in the operation than in the the business of that technology for example yeah so i you know that is you know i guess it's um probably that hacker mentality of you know growing up when i did where you know all software was pirated not bought um you know you got stuff for nothing um, but the proviso is then you shared all your ideas. Um, you know, so I guess it's that open source mentality, which I really like the idea of, um, you know, if you're going to tuck yourself away and develop a product, it's, it's much harder to do it in isolation. Um, you know, I know if we go back to, um, looking at developing civilizations, you know, throughout history, archeologists have been able to work out that most civilizations invent, about 1% of their own technology and borrow 99%. Um, so our ideas evolve from other people's ideas. You know, we, you know, each, each person is only putting a small part of their, their idea on technology that somebody else has already developed. Um, so if you want that to work effectively, you know, you, got, you know, as a species, we've got to be open and share ideas. And, you know, I guess that the tech world is getting there, you know, um, you know, for guys that like to tinker in their workshop that, you know, the computer chips and, and technology now that, you know, even at just a school level and educational levels, you know, for very small amounts of money, I can go out and, you know, buy hardware and, and turn it into real products in my workshop. You know, the, the world is changing so fast in that, in that space. Um, yeah. and I find it very exciting. Yeah, it's totally exciting. It's, it's funny. I talk about that a lot in uh, different kind of presentations I give around the, how, um, 
fundamental of a revolution it is that we have access to these technologies anywhere in the world. And, you know, yours was a great example, like the computing power that you have now through access to Amazon Web Services and everything else, not to mention machine learning toolkits. And, you know, there's so many tools available for really, really cheap that not that long ago just didn't exist. And so we can much more easily build off of the foundation that other people have created. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like if you look at machine learning, so that's, you know, I, I, you know, I wanted to know what this machine learning was. Um, so, you know, I read a few articles, um, you know, tinkered with some code, made some very tiny machine learning type algorithms so that I could get a picture of them in my head. Um, but if you wanted to use it seriously, there are just tools you can get access to and you put your inputs in um, and allow serious experts to have built the algorithms and you get your answers out. You know, it's, um, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. You know, we've all got access to others' ideas and that's, that's a very powerful thing. Do you think that farming works the same way? Like outside of technology, is there this sense of, you know, I share this idea and you build off of it and, and we all kind of benefit from learning from each other or is it different somehow in the farming practices versus the tech products? Um, at a fundamental level, I don't think it is. So I know... You know, if we're part of um, groups, you know, um, I'm part of a lifetime new management group and there's only six participants and it runs over two years and, and, you know, every quarter we get together and we drive around all six farms and we're looking at our sheep. But essentially, um, you know, we all look through everyone's shed. We all look at their ideas and, and solutions to different things. And, you know, half the benefit, benefit of the course isn't just what we're being taught, but it's the fact that we're going around and sharing and swapping ideas with other farmers. And, you know, that can be as simple as how somebody swung a gate that no one else has thought of. And next, you know, we're all doing it. Um, so we do share those ideas. But, um, you know, I guess I'm squarely, you know, I'm in the sheep game. You know, the sheep breeding in Australia really probably has a very bad image for the adoption of tech. Um, so, you know, I, th I think we're certainly a long way behind, say, cropping and other agricultural industries, um, certainly behind dairy and your more intensive livestock industries for technology. Um, I guess I do have a few theories on why that is, um, you know, but they can only be theories. I can't say, you know, categorically, this is why we're lagging behind. If we are. Um, so Let's hear them. What's, what are your theories? Um, so I guess, you know, what makes people adopt a new technology? So for me, a new technology has got to make it easier for people to do what they already do. Um, like, I guess if we've got an example, if we, you know, like um, Uber as a, a ride sharing app has been adopted around the world massively, but Uber didn't suddenly make people want to have other people drive them around cities, you know, taxis and those services already existed. Um, what Uber does is make it very easy to do. Um, so, you know, there's a need that people already have and, it, you know, if a tech comes in and, and makes that desire very simple and easy um, people will adopt it um, whereas I see in the sheep or the livestock game most of the technology um, revolves around electronic tags so um, most commercial farms at the, you know at that base commercial level don't operate under individual animal management they don't have electronic tags somebody comes to them with this new technology and say well, look if you put these tags in and take these measurements you can make better decisions but all the pharmacies is extra work all they see is, well, I've got to put an extra tag in. 
and you know, oh, I've got you know, I've got to take seven extra measurements, and I've got to have my sheep in the yard seven extra times that I never had to do before. So, um, at the moment, the tech that the livestock industry has been given um, from the producer level is just extra work. And even though farmers are displayed a value proposition for that extra work, not all the, not all of them are willing to adopt it. Um, you know, they're happy with their work levels or, you know, at the moment, or they don't want them to get he heavier. Um, so I think, you know, if we look at the cropping industry, a lot of our technologies make it easier for them to do what they already want to do. And they're just part of management. So, you know, we've got our tractors that steer themselves now. Um, you know, farmers always had to steer their tractors, the technology that makes that incredibly easy, um, you know, people are happy to adopt and once they've used it, they never want to go back. Um, so that, you know, the technologies in the sheep space aren't at that point. Um, you know, I think for technology to be adopted wholesale at livestock level, those technologies, the benefits need to come as a byproduct of management. So all that extra data um, and decision-making and power like that needs to come as a byproduct of management. So it just needs to be tied into their daily activities, not, new and extra activities yeah um, yeah i think i think that's correct and we actually just wrote a report on kind of the some of the issues behind why the tech products haven't had a value proposition and you know part of a value proposition is that it really solves a problem and that it's easy to use and that it fits into the existing workflow and one of the interesting things we found in kind of digging into this space was that yes a lot of the tech in the cropping space has been kind of adoption is is higher but satisfaction and utilization isn't that high so just because your tractor comes with all this fancy digital stuff, you know, whatever it might be, yield monitor or data management or whatever it might be, um, that doesn't mean that that tech is getting used and it doesn't mean that that tech is getting, um, that, that farmers are attributing any value to it. So I think it's interesting when we talk about adoption, there's some nuances there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, every header for the last however long comes with a yield monitor and yield maps and um, the end of each harvest, I get to look at pretty maps, but we don't really do much with it. Um, right. Um, so that's, uh, you know, um, I'm happy to admit that my cropping's are a lot lower tech than my sheep, um, but that's just, you know, that's where I haven't concentrated in. Um, so happy to adopt new technologies in my sheep, but I don't want my whole farm business to be cutting edge new adoption because then, you know, that's um, lifts the risk profile a lot, I guess. So there's some things I always say yes to, and there are some things that I want it to be well proven and I want other people to have taken all the risks yeah, I'm really curious about that. How, how do you decide, like, like what are those things? Is it, I imagine it's not as simple as sheep side versus cropping side. So what are the, like, what, what kinds of things are you willing to take a punt on or some risk on and have it be new, whether that's you're building a new thing or working with a, a startup or a tech company versus an area where, like, this needs to be proven and I'm not going to be on the early adopter side. Like, this needs to work and I'll wait for it. Yeah, I... I uh... It may be as simple as cropping versus sheep. Um, so I guess it's a, um, you know, I've tried to make it, I guess, like a philosophy, I suppose. I know um, we've sort of developed a bit of a reputation amongst the researchers and scientists that, you know, I have this lovely data set that's well-structured and, and people can have access to, and I'm happy to share it for people that want to do research. So I get a lot of offers. Um, and, you know, if I stop, 
accepting those offers, you know, I'm working on the principle that they'll slowly dry up and they'll stop coming. So, you know, if, um, I know, you know, there's currently several projects underway through different organisations involved in my sheep. Um, and I guess, you know, the impost is I've got my sheep in, I've let them do some work. Um, the advantage is if they actually come up with, you know, a, a real product and kick some goals, um, I will have seen the development. Um, hopefully, I'll be in a better position to adopt it earlier than others. And, you know, some at some point in the future, I'll be able to make an advantage of that, I guess. Um, but, you know, it's also, you know, a love of the data and what we're doing and having access to data. Um, so, you know, I, you know, happy to participate with people so long as I have access to the data that we're gathering as well. So I'd be less interested in somebody coming in and saying, look, we've got this new idea, we wanna gather all this data, um, but then they go away and we have no interaction and then they just come back with a finished product. I guess it's not as appealing to me as being part of that process and learning experience. Yeah, sure, that, mm. that makes total sense. So do you have examples of, of kind of some of the collaborations that you're involved in either on the research side or, or more commercial side? Any, um, any good stories that stand out of, of examples? Uh, yeah, I guess if, if we go back a while, I guess it started with the Sheep CRC, which is, um, you know, a cooperative research centre and, and an organisation that gets government funding to do research. It was in the early days of um, radio frequency tags on livestock and somebody at the Sheep CRC was unsure whether we were using the right technology. And so that's our current um, RFID tags. And they were wondering whether we might be better off using a different frequency that had much larger read ranges. Um, so their idea is that as you drove a truck into the sale yards, you could drive through a reader and it would read every sheep in the truck all at once without taking them on and off. Um, and they came to me with this idea, you know, we've got these tags, is there, you know, can you use them to see if they'll work? And I guess, you know, I had to think about it for a while. I went back to them and looked and said, you know, the other technologies in place, people are using it. The only way people would ever switch to the new technology is if it did something the other one can't. Um, and the idea I pitched to them was a, a pedigree matchmaker system. Um, my idea being that you would have a, a, an RFID reader at a water point and you would track ewes and lambs in and out of water and you would be able to work out the pedigree, which lambs belong to which ewes. Um, and, you know, everything seemed good, um, except, you know, during that process, the company that was going to supply us with the tags pulled out. We didn't hear anything from them. Um, we were left with an idea, we had funding, um, we went ahead with it with the old technology and it turns out it worked really well. Um, so, which was, you know, good for me. I had a means of getting pedigree on lambs that I wasn't able to before. The Sheep CRC was excited because they'd actually gone from an idea through research to an actual usable, saleable product. Um, we actually ended up on a TV program in Australia called the ABC New Inventors, which we won an episode of with the, the invention. So, you know, it was an exciting time. Um, so that's, I guess, an example of where we went from an idea through to a product research um, and out the other end to a, a saleable product. Um, and obviously that's because I partnered with the Sheep CRC. Um, they owned all the IP. So there was no, you know, there wasn't any IP available to me. Um, but because it was industry, it's industry IP, and that's still a product that industry has and uses today. Um, so, you know, that's a, a story from start to finish, I guess, of a successful idea through to a successful product. Um, Interesting. Did you, what, what did you, um, 
It's such a good story. I love that. Um, What did you learn from that experience? I'm I'm interested that it didn't give you the itch at all to want to be on that commercial side. Like, it seems like you were happy to um, be part of it, obviously a bit of fun and lots of success and and that's really exciting, but there was no sense of like, oh, I want to, I want to build this company or be part of it or get more benefit than just using it on the, on the farm or for the operation. You didn't get that kind of entrepreneurial itch to go commercialize it in some way. No, and I, I guess it's like, um, I get that comment a lot um, from people that aren't farmers. Um, so rarely do I get that comment from people that are farmers because I guess they understand. So, you know, um, I'm still farming on the farm that I grew up on. You know, I still work past the trees that I built tree houses in as a child. Um, so, you know, growing up, you know, you can either see that as a, as a wonderful advantage um, and you're very centred in where your home is, or you can see that as a trap um, that you can't get out of. And, and people see it as both. I guess I see it as, you know, something wonderful that I walk out the door and I'm in this environment and landscape that I've known my whole life. Um, and the desire, you know, you know to pursue that, um, that product and develop it, would, you know, I'd, essentially my farming would have to be, the back, you know, it would have to be the thing that I just organised other people to do on the side. And I guess that's not what I'm after. You know, I actually like being the farmer um, and being involved in this tech and, and getting these tools helps me to do more things with my sheep and my farm. And I guess that that's my drive. You know, I wanted, I wanted those solutions. Um, whereas I don't, you know, I don't need to turn that thing into a product. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, it, it, it's so important in the work that we do with startups around like, what do you want out of this? Cause there is a lot of pressure in the startup world, especially to, you know, build this business and take it international and raise venture capital and do all these things. And there's no like playbook that says you have to do that. Like your role in the venture can be very different. It doesn't have to be as the, the CEO, it doesn't have to be even a continuing role. It can be part of the idea in the early stages. And so that, um, process of figuring out what where do you want to be like what do you want out of this is so important because otherwise you end up doing something that there's this arbitrary pressure to do and that doesn't make you happy and doesn't solve the problem and um so I think I think that's really cool and um, really important and you got a great solution industry gets a great solution and you get to do what you want on a day-to-day basis instead of ending up you know unhappy doing something else yeah absolutely I think that's you know um you know you've got to be able to do something that you're happy with um, and I'll, look, and, and part of it could be a fear of change, you know, I'm, you know, reasonably successful at being a farmer and a sheep breeder and I, and I know it and I don't have to think too hard each day to make it work. Um, you know, whereas stepping out and developing a product, you know, there's a high level of risk, um, high levels of stress. Um, you know, there could be that kind of resistance could be as simple as resistance to change, you know, even though I'm happy to accept change on my farm on a regular basis. So... But yeah, I, mean, I, oh, I know ahead. people have, have been down the other route. I, I guess, you know, you're familiar with the Automed product. Um, and, you know, I've had involvement with that. But, you know, Dave Edwards, the guy that's developed that product, you know, we grew up not far apart, you know. So he, he had the same upbringing on the family farm that I did. And, you know, he's gone the other route. You know, he's had off-farm jobs. Um, and he's, you know, now CEO of his own company, developing his own product, um, you know, move to the States to pursue markets and, um, you know, 
the complete and utter opposite path, if you like, through a new product and tech and, and, and startup. Yeah. Um, you've had I a bit to do with that. Oh, sorry to interrupt, Mark. You, you've had a bit right. to do with the Automed product. Tell me about your um, involvement with, with Dave and with that product. Yeah, so, you know, um, always chatted tech with Dave. Um, I know he had a crack at writing software in the early days to develop, you know, software as a product. Um, you know, he's another self-taught kind of guy in the, in the computer code kind of game. Um, but I guess his real forte has been able to, you know, um, develop products, sit down with computers and, and design programs and, and make stuff. So, you know, he, he made this automated um, medication delivery system that, you know, uses all the modern, I guess, ag tech cloud sourcing, you know, the device works off your smartphone, sends all the data into the cloud. Um, and, you know, over the, you know, it, you know, essentially every Christmas when you come back to the farm and his family, we'd have a bit of a chat and you'd talk about where things are up to and you'd follow the development. Um, and then, you know, one year when he came back, he said, I've got this product. Um, and he showed me, what do you think? Would you like to um, trial and test it for me? So, you know, happy to say yes. Um, so we had this, you know, wonderful product on the farm that we were trialing and testing. And, you know, in the early days, um, that's essentially all we were doing. Yeah, we just, you know, um, to start with, we couldn't use it for real work. We just have to test it and um, take notes on, on errors and, and those kind of things. Um, but now, you know, it's a, you know, it's a tool on the farm that when we're vaccinating or medicating the animals, you know, my, you know, the staff just pick it up, um, you know, punch in a few settings and the way they go. So it's, you know, it's got, gone from complete startup product to, a you know, an integral part of the farm, if you like, for doing jobs. Um, and, you know, and, and then being part of that process all the way through has been fascinating. Yeah, I was going to ask about your role in that process. So uh, it sounds like at first your role was kind of give it a go, give some feedback, try it, you know, test it, see what's working. Um, and then like, how did that evolve? Did they compensate you? Um, you know, kind of tell me about the journey of, of your involvement. Yeah, so I guess, um, you know, the compensation was, you know, here's this really expensive product, you can have it. Um, so you, you had the product, you had the potential that it was going to be really cool and helpful. Um, and you didn't have to pay for it. So I guess that was a hook on my side. Um, but also it was something new. So, you know, that's, I think Dave also came to me because, it, you know, I had that software background. So, you know, he was able to loosely explain the software inside the device. I could start using it and then saying, you know, it enabled me to write a more detailed report on what was potentially not working, what was working. Um, you know, so I guess it made it those communication aspects a lot easier between us. Um, you know, in the early days, David actually send his software guy out to the farm, you know, so he's writing code for this device. He'd never been on a farm in his life. So we were able to get him out and give him the product and say, look, here's some sheep, you know, here's a medication, away you go, start using the product. Um, you know, so it's certainly valuable to get the guys building the products and making the work to make sure that they've all used it in the field. Um, I, you know, I think... The thing that Dave really got right, so the product that I'm using now is still the original piece of hardware that we turned up with um, several years ago. So that original piece of hardware hasn't had to change. Um, all the testing and all the adapting, they're all been software issues. Um, so to, you know, to go from the product that didn't quite work to an awesome product, um, you know, it's all been the code inside the device. Um, so it tells me that he, you know, you know, he's obviously it wouldn't have been his first go round, but the first time he's released a physical product, you know, he, you know, it was a cracker. 
Yeah. And so do you, you're still involved with the company as an advisor? Is that right? Yeah. So that's, um, you know, so I guess they've just recently made that position somewhat official. So every month they just have an advisory group um, that they sit down with and bounce ideas around and, and have discussions. And I guess the idea is to just to make sure that they have that outside input all the time. Um, you know, I guess a bit of guidance. I know when I'm, you know, when you're building a product, you're, you know, 100% of your thought process is about the actual building um, and solving problems with your product, um, not necessarily concentrating on the problems that your product actually has to solve. Um, and obviously, they're separate things. So, you know, one, obviously, your product needs to work, but it needs to, needs to solve a problem for somebody in the real world. And if it doesn't do that, nobody will want to buy it. Right. And so having that kind of real ground truth feedback from someone using it uh, makes a huge difference. Are there other farmers on the advisory group or does he have a kind of mixed, um, you know, set of perspectives there? Uh, so, yeah. So my understanding is they have you know, a very mixed um, background of people in the, in the little advisory group. So I guess I'm, I might, you know, fill the spot of the farmer. Um, so I guess, you know, it's about seeking a skill set that, you know, you don't have in one person. Um, yeah, a lot of pressure. You have to represent all of the farmers. <laughs> uh, you do. I um, and it is pressure. I know I'm on a few industry committees at a national level with genetics, and you are there to represent an aspect of the industry. Um, and then, you know there is a lot of pressure that goes with that. You need, um, you need to keep open lines of communication back to your industry. Um, you need to be willing to sit down and argue points that you don't personally believe in but a vast majority of your industry does and if you're there to represent them that's what you need to be doing um that must be pretty hard it can be um it, it doesn't always happen um obviously most of the time you know um being in part of the industry we all have common goals and aspirations but it doesn't always work that way um and you know if you're in that position it's not your job simply to put your own views forward you you know you're there to make you know decisions and and help direct R&D for your own industry. So, you know, you, you've got to fill all aspects of that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I wanted to <laughs> want to ask you about social media. I um, We obviously met at, at a workshop, but then I've since kind of kept tabs on you and, and the various things you're doing and hilarious videos uh, among them on social media. How did you decide to get involved on Twitter and what has that been like? Um, so, yeah, the decision to get you know, I was dragged kicking and screaming. To <laughs> um, so, but, it, you know, as, as we just in the last point about keeping lines of communication open to industry, you know, it, it's actually been really good. So, you know, I am in contact with lots of farmers. I can pose questions before I go off to meetings and I actually, you know, normally they're really good and they give me lots of feedback. Um, although you have to keep in mind that Twitter is a very small subset of the population. Um, so how do we get to it? Um, so because of our on-farm genetics business. Um, we're updating our webpage um, and the company that we're doing the webpage, you know, started to talk, look, now we can link this webpage into your Facebook page, your Twitter page, um, uh, your Instagram. And, you know, we, we all looked at each other blankly and said, well, we, we don't have any of those. Um, you're off the hook. You don't have to link them in. Um, and they um, sternly recommended that we should have them that a web page standing on its own without being connected to all these other aspects wasn't that valuable. Um, so I guess in the group or the family partnership, we had discussions and, and it was decided that we needed Facebook and Twitter and Instagram 
and I, I, I said I don't want to do any of them. Um, and then became worried that if I was not making a decision, everyone else would choose which one they wanted and I'd be left doing the one that no one wanted. Um, so, so I chose Twitter because it only had 140 characters. Um, Are you happy with that choice? Um, yes, I am. It's um, um, like, like most things that involve tech and, and stuff like that. Maybe it can be a little bit obsessive and that possibly may not be good for me. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. I've now been on Twitter for just over 12 months. So, um, you know, I still don't think I fully understand social media. Um, I know I don't use the hashtags and all those kind of things properly. Um, you know, like most things I do, I did um, read up on how to use Twitter and, and found what information I could before I joined, um, you know. That's quite a rabbit hole. You could have gone down with, with the help and now two guides on how to use Twitter, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. I, you know, there was a lot of information out there. I found one that sort of a little bit resonated, but, you know, stuff like, you know, yes, fill in your photos, have your picture, um, you know, put in some descriptive information. Um, if it's for a business, stick to a tight guideline of topics. Um, so it's a business one, you know, obviously I've called myself Sheep Geek CP and, um, if you want to see tweets about sheep, that's what you'll see. So <laughs> try and keep most of the personal stuff out um, unless it's happened in some kind of relationship to the sheep. So, Like your kids as testers for your products? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's it. So that's, that's the way they get in. They are my workers' kids. My kids weren't volunteering at the time. Um, but, yeah, so that's, um, um, yeah, unless they're testing something or doing something with the sheep, yeah, they, they don't get in. Yeah, fair enough. Well, and your not, website definitely not the cat. Yeah, your website looks great. Um, I, I had a look at it. it it's um up to snuff in terms of all the modern, uh, digital marketing and social media stuff. Do you do you get um like do you find that your website and that social media presence has had a return for the business? Do you feel like it was a worthwhile investment? Uh, look, absolutely. Website. So you know, obviously, we've had a website for quite some time, but you know, you you put it up, you put your product on there that you sell and one day you get an email um, requesting an order from somebody that you've never had to speak to, never had any dealings with. Um, they've found the information they need on the, on your website, made a decision, chosen a product and they've put in an order. You know, that's, you know, it's, it's pretty strong validation of what it can offer for you. So, um, you know, that's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's in our modern world, if you've got something to sell, I guess it's a, it's a must have, yeah, um, that well, feeling yeah. of of like I got this inquiry from this person I don't know, but they're interested in what I'm doing, and like it's I remember the first time that happened through through our website, and um, which is a really cool feeling of like oh this stuff you know actually kind of works. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you get a little endorphin rush. You, know, you get motivated for a day or two. Um, so and uh, look, this time I know the very first website we had I made myself. Um, um, but you know I'm happy to outsource all of that work now. So, you know, we pay somebody else to do it. So our web, our website, you know, it's got a database component to it. It um, accesses an industry API for all the data on our sheep. Um, so we never have to update it anymore. It's, you know, it's all done automatically and, um, you know, it's given us quite a lot of flexibility that way. So it's, it's been really valuable tool for us. 
Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue, Mark, to um, my last question here, which is how can people find you if they want to learn more about uh, about you, about the tech stuff you're doing, about uh, about the stud? Um, where can they find you? Uh, so obviously, if the, the website, if they just Google Santa Plus Marinos, they'll find us. Um, and obviously, I'll just mention my Twitter handle, um, SheepGeekCP. So that's, you know, between those two things, it's pretty hard not to find us. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Mark. Really appreciate it. Really interesting insights um, and looking forward to uh, definitely following you on Twitter and seeing what comes uh, out next. Yeah, no, I'm happy to have had a chat, Sarah. It's um, been good and interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Ag Tech So What? You can stay up to date with the latest episodes and news at agtechsowhat.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or other guests to recommend, we'd love to hear from you. Just hop on the website and leave us a comment or send us a message. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please share the podcast with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.